As Dave mentioned, my name's Tom Seaver, and my wife Shannon and I have enjoyed being a part of the church family for, I think, eight years or more now, and so glad to be here today, and thank, uh, thanks Pastor Nick for entrusting the uh, ministry of the sermon to me today. So we begin with uh, the question, what's possible in your life? Think of the possibilities. Uh, quite a few of you here this morning remember the broadcast Hour of Power, televised out of the Crystal Cathedral with Reverend Robert Schuler. I remember Reverend Schuler in a sermon sharing that God's word uh, speaks on the possibilities in your life. And back then, I kind of considered that sort of a, uh, kind of a, uh, you might say, a little watered-down way about speaking about the Bible, you know, the possibilities. And sometimes Reverend Schuler was needled a little bit by, uh, you know, being in the stream of positive thinking and letting that inform and be his lens of scripture. But, you know, as I engaged in our text this morning, for this morning, Matthew 4, I, I will tell you that I thought of the possibilities in my life because of this battle into which Jesus entered against Satan and triumphed. For, each, for me, for eternity, and for here, in the here and now. What's possible in my life? What's possible in your life? Um, most of you, I don't know if any of you know that um, I'm an accomplished guitar player in my fantasy life. <laughs> my son says, Dad, come on, we're all out of the house now. You're an empty nester. Hit the garage and start clanging away. I should. I should go to a pawn shop and get an old jangle guitar and grab YouTube and just start screeching away out there in the garage and be sure not to step on the oil spills from the mower, from the oil that I changed, you know. But wait a minute, it's still sitting in there all winter long. <laughs> Hope it works in the spring. Or how about uh, the possibilities of work? If you've uh, been in job transition or, you know, uh, are looking for a job, you've heard others say, you know, if money were not a concern and you could be anything, what would that be? You know, think of the possibilities in life, hobbies, our work. But now let's connect the thought of possibilities to the reality of living as sinner, saint. Do you or have you struggled with a nagging sense of, of guilt along life's way? just dragging a heavy load that shouldn't be and doesn't need to be there? Think of the possibility. Have you found yourself consumed, yes, dominated by the daily grind of work, school, life in general, wondering if you're ever going to catch a break and make ends meet? Are you controlled, dominated by what others think about you? instead of resting in God's thoughts of you, which are love and blessing. Maybe you've gotten so frustrated, you're just ready to even throw in the towel on this Christian life because of the recent defeat in that nagging, pestering habit, pattern, or addiction. And so I offer you this morning, think of the possibilities 
realize that triumphant living is possible. And what do we mean by triumphant living? We don't mean to convey that it's about doing better than others. It's not about reaching a life without sinning anymore. And you know, it's not always even about getting better, bottom line. No, we intend by triumphant living to mean triumphant living to mean that we lean in on Jesus for victory over temptation, and we lean in on Jesus also having the boldness to come to him when we're struggling and stumbling. In this season of Lent that we are now in, we've entered our sermon series called Giving It Up. Living triumphantly as we face temptation entails, and it might seem a bit ironic, giving up control. Giving up control. Usually we think of triumph in terms of taking control, grabbing the bull by the horns and getting after it, saying, I've got this. But as the sinner saints we are, we think in terms of Jesus has got this for triumphant living. And so we lean in on Jesus who gave up control by leaning in on his heavenly father and trusting in his word. Facing temptation, Jesus showed the way out for us. In facing temptation, Jesus showed the victory for us and also how we deal with our defeat. So this brings us to uh, Matthew chapter 4, verses 4 through 1, leading in, reading in Jesus' name. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Leading up to this, we had Moses who fasted for 40 days and nights on Mount Sinai in preparation of receiving the Ten Commandments and for his ministry of leading the Israelites. Elijah had his prophetic ministry and fasted for 40 days and nights on his way to Mount Horeb. And now, in Matthew 4, we have the third human being recorded to have fasted for 40 days and 40 nights in preparation for his ministry, which was to get to the cross, to make it there. Having shown the way and especially being the way for you and me in life and for life. Jesus, the Son of God, also Son of Man, fully God, fully human. Now, as I kind of dug in a little bit to study the effects of, human, of fasting on the human being, I, I learned that, you know, really not a whole lot. I, it, it's, there's, so, there's so much information out there, and I basically learned that no one knows how long a person can live without eating exactly, and it wouldn't be ethical to conduct an experiment on that. I mean, would you want to be the subject of that experiment? And no surprise, the length of uh, a person's life without eating depends on their health, their age, other factors like uh, their, their habits and such. And I saw some articles, too, that some people emulated Jesus, have tried to emulate Jesus with the 40-day fast and didn't survive the spiritual exercise, tragically. 
Needless to say, this fast of Jesus presented an extreme condition which he must endure. And added to this was the sweltering heat of the day in the Judean desert and the cold at night. And as Mark records in the parallel account of this text, wild animals that needed to be thought about. So I was intrigued by the second half of verse 2. He was hungry. At first blush, it seems to me like a huge understatement, but it's not. I mean, Matthew is Holy Spirit inspired. He's not going to be trite about recording God's word. I got into trying to drilling down to understand what was going on here. And thankfully, I was talking to my wife about my study, and she goes, he was hungry. Don't miss the obvious. Matthew is letting us know Jesus was made to be like us. He was fully human in every way, and he was hungry. Matthew helps us see that. We needed Jesus to be who he is, fully God and fully human. And in this situation, he would have been absolutely famished to the ninth degree. And he faced the most extreme of conditions in this condition, a battle zone, directly facing the prince of darkness, the devil, who said to Jesus, Come on, you're starving, you're famished, you're going to die. Enough of this nonsense, take control. In a split second, Jesus, you could leverage your deity and tell that stone to become bread and put an end to your ravaging hunger. The devil tried to get Jesus to distrust God's word. He tried to get him to distrust his heavenly father who would provide for his son in due time. And at the end of this text, we see that angels attended him and served him. We know too often and too well, you and I, how we are led to distrust our Heavenly Father and not believe that he provides in due time, giving us our daily bread. We see life in the provisions instead of in the provider and what comes from his word. And so we rely on ourselves and we strive, strive and work ourselves to the bone for provisions rather than trust and rest in our Heavenly Father's providential care. And with laser focus, we focus on earning and acquiring and accumulating, perhaps even to the neglect of our family's needs and the attention that they need, to the neglect of our neighbor and her need. Well, friends, Jesus showed the way. Trust God and his word. Let go and let God be God. Let God be God. Give up control. And so Jesus cited scripture, drawing drawing on Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, trusting in that word with which he answered the devil, it is written. And the Greek sense of that word is, it is written, it stands now, and it stands for you and me today and forever. It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Commentator R.C.H. Lenski says regarding this temptation, not diminishing the fact that this was a real strong force on Jesus at this moment, but he says, the devil is a fool 
to think that Jesus might actually think that the bread is what ultimately, ultimately keeps him alive. It's not. It's God's word. It's what comes from his mouth and directs things. Jesus, in his ravaging hunger, feeling the full force of temptation to convert that stone into bread, knew full well that in Deuteronomy, it wasn't the manna in the wilderness that ultimately kept them alive. That was a test. It was God's word that directed the creation of the manna that was his source of life. And not long after this test in the wilderness, Jesus shared some words in the Sermon on the Mount that we can live by. Let's listen to these words and soak them in. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or weep or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can anyone of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? Brothers and sisters at Oak Hill, friends, let go and let God be God in your life. Now, this isn't the same thing to say as let go and let God. It, it doesn't really, that's not really biblical. It doesn't take any consideration that God has, he set forth things in creation to facilitate and foster the transmission of his gifts and provisions like work and jobs, ingenuity, and so on. But what we're getting at is know that these provisions, that the stuff that we need is not what ultimately keeps us alive. Rather, life's source is in God's word, coming from his mouth, directing things in his creation day to day for our needs to be met. And Jesus has shown the way in this. So Jesus triumphed over the temptation to distrust the Father and distrust his word. And now with the second, it's about trying to get Jesus to have a false trust in the Father and put his Father to the test. And this leads us to uh, verses 5 through 7 today. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written... He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now the devil gets spiritual and tries to match Jesus' sighting of scripture with his own. You know, I kind of wonder if he almost had a, a tremolo in his voice, and the angels will bury you up on wings. <laughs> Getting spiritual here with Jesus. But he's dealing with the master of all masters, a scripture, who knows the word through and through and handles it rightly all the time. But back to he was hungry. As human, Jesus felt the full force of this temptation. He felt the allure of being a superstar, alighting on angels' wings, having fallen 100 feet before he smashes against the rocks. He knew what was ahead of him. He knew what was coming, and that was the cross, the immense suffering of physical torture 
an emotional strain, psychological strain of bearing the sins of the world, yours and mine. Did he know what was immediately coming after him on his, on his, during his ministry, where everybody would want a piece of him? Would he ever be able to catch a break and get a moment's rest? I, I don't know if that was revealed to him or not, or if he was kept from that in his, in his humanity. He was human like us. But he does know of the cross and what lies before him. This was an opportunity to just have a moment to be spectacular, just to catch a break and, and dazzle the crowd below, having his moment in the sun. Look at me! Just this one time. Maybe be hoisted on the shoulders of those below and be whisked away as their champion. But he showed us the way. You know what he did? He cited scripture that he knew so well and handled so rightly. You know, the devil could have uh, amassed scriptures at him and thrown scripture after scripture at him to tempt him to do this. But only Jesus, only Jesus could thoroughly handle it rightly. And so he answered him, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. The devil was correct that Jesus could have confidence in Christ, in God's promises to protect him. But the devil was wrong that he could be presumptuous about it. Jesus, who knows the word and applies it rightly, showed us the way. So again, we know all too well and often that, that we've neglected God's word and the scriptures in our lives, that we've misapplied it or we've resisted its application to our lives. Some, and maybe some of us here today, and I'm not beating on, I'm not beating on us, but we, aren't, we simply aren't reading the Bible. We aren't engaging in the Bible. Not allowing ourselves to be guided by God's perfect will that's expressed in it to guide us and coach us in life. And especially not availing ourselves to um, have his gospel and his word deliver its promises to us for us having failed to uh, be guided and be transformed by God's word. Simply not reading our Bibles. Some, and maybe for some of us, we've, we've vetted God's word. We've, we've you know, vetted it. We've embraced the things that we really resonate with and you know, really like, and then we've dismissed the parts that, Ugh, I, I don't like that. That was just relevant to Paul, Apostle Paul's time and Jesus' time, but not today. It's too harsh. So we've placed ourselves above Scripture instead of Scripture being above us. We have to embrace all of Scripture. Is God's word to you becoming something in your life just to kind of accumulate knowledge without transformation in your life? God's word transforms us not for this us to say, look at me and what I know, see me. That's what the temptation for Jesus was, see me, look at how great I am. No, God's word is meant to transform us for us to say, I see you in your need and I want to help you. Some in our Christian culture have, have built an improper framework of God's word. 
They've built an improper framework of God's word that is destructive and quite frankly can destroy faith. Let me illustrate. So last week I had the joy of leading children's church and our theme of the day was uh, fixing broken relationships. And so I brought a toolbox in there labeled tools for getting along. And to demonstrate that I brought out a broken pencil and asked them uh, you know, how they'd fix, how we should fix that pencil. And they completely stole my thunder. Hands flashed up, tape and glue. Okay, so they were exactly right. So I brought out some tape and glue from the box and fixed the pencil. And then we talked about how um, there's ways we can fix broken relationships. A kind word, a forgiving word to a, a friend. Uh, maybe a hug. And so I brought a teddy bear and hug a friend or a brother or sister. Maybe share your toys with them. Or crumpled up a piece of paper and I tossed it into the garbage can and it's like throwing a grudge away, never see it again. And then I brought out the Bible, said, this is God's word and this helps us in a special way get along with each other and fix broken relationships. And that's good, isn't it? I don't see any like disagreement out there. That's awesome. And I wanted them that, to be a takeaway that God loves them, I love them, that God want, forgives us, and that we want to forgive each other. That's good stuff. But unfortunately, this, uh, I think the, 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 the metaphor of, of, of that, we, that Christian culture has taken the toolbox thing and kind of reduced God's word to that it's, um, it's we use God's word to construct and build a Christian life. And how's that done? By getting better at the law and doing better at all its commands. Well, you know, um, there are some issues with that. God the Father, the architect, which he is, and the Son, the master craftsman, which he is, at his right hand, we start to see them kind of looking down on us, saying to one another, well, they accepted Christ last month, and they got the toolbox, let's see how they do. Let's see if they improve. And we get busy about working on improving our lives, 